Welcome to Into the Truth, the podcast where we shine the light of truth on the issues of today. I'm Pierpaolo Finaldi, your host for the podcast and CEO of the Catholic Truth Society. Today we're joined by Father Andrew Pinsent, who has recently written a book for uh, CTS together with his co-authors uh, on the question of AI, which is a huge uh, issue at the moment and is being spoken about in all sorts of places. He also uh, has written many uh, books in the past for CTS on um, uh, formation in the faith, evangelium, and in particular on uh, science and faith. So welcome to the podcast, Father. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Father Andrew is Research Director of the Ian Ramsey Centre for Science and Religion at the Faculty of Theology and Religion at University of Oxford and has been at Oxford since 2009. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Who, who is Ian Ramsey and what does the Ian Ramsey uh, Centre do? That's an excellent question. Uh, Ian Ramsey was an Anglican bishop who worked in the 1960s, uh, and he became quite famous. Uh, he used to do a lot of work with the BBC uh, when they cared a lot more about getting their religious output right, or tried to. Uh, and um, one of his big ambitions uh, was to found a centre at Oxford dedicated to science and religion. And he was himself a professor at Oxford, as well as being Bishop of Durham. Uh, and after his death, his rather sudden death, actually, he died after a BBC meeting, um, after his death, he, uh, though he didn't succeed himself in establishing the centre, a centre was established uh, for science and religion. Uh, I joined in, nine, in 2009 when Peter Harrison was the director, and most of the last 10 years it's been Alistair McGrath, who is the most cited theologian in the world today, uh, and, and um, it's been a, a really an honour to work with him. Great. So, um, Father, tell me a little bit um, about your your background, because you have uh, doctorates in both uh, um, particle physics and in uh, in philosophy. Uh, so as far as you know, are you the only particle physicist priest, or? Uh, yes, I, I think um, given my education, I'd be a very expensive expensive indulgence for most of history. Um, Yes, I, originally I wanted to be an astronaut, uh, but there were no jobs for astronauts in the United Kingdom. You had to be American or Russian. I suppose now it would also be Chinese and Indian, probably. Um, so that was uh, clearly not a, not a, uh, a way to make a living. Uh, but um, I decided to study physics, and I went to Oxford to study uh, physics at Merton College. And I fell in love not with outer space, but with inner space. And I learned, this was a very exciting time in Europe, 1980s, the... Um, uh, it was, uh, Europe was moving ahead of the United States in certain areas of, of particle physics. Uh, and um, uh, there was a big discovery of something called the W's and Z bosons. Uh, I won't go into the details of what they are. But anyway, it was a very exciting time. And uh, Europe was building an even bigger accelerator, the Large Electron-Positron Collider. Some of your listeners or viewers may know about the discovery of the Higgs boson. And we were looking for the Higgs boson uh, 30 years ago. Uh, we didn't discover it, but um, uh, we were using a different machine, uh, this large electron-positron collider in the same tunnel as Large Hadron Collider. Uh, and um, by accident, we changed the world because we invented the Internet. So that the World Wide Web started at CERN um, when, I was, uh, when I was working there. I always remember Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, who said uh, the Internet will never be important, uh, which is a lesson that you should be very careful listening to gurus. Uh, so 
I worked in particle physics, then I went to the business for seven years, and then I was called to become a priest. God is calling um, men and women to vocations, uh, even in the world of the internet and particle accelerators. Uh, and um, being a businessman at the time, I did a cost-benefit analysis. So uh, I thought, it's going to cost me my life. But what's very fascinating is most of the things we make in business don't last very long. But you can I've got, I'm carrying around an iPhone with me at the moment. It's, um, it's already obsolete. Uh, and a huge amount of work goes into these things. Invest in the human soul, that's forever. I'm very struck by that. The long-term investment's amazing. And by the way, this is why I support particularly the work of the CTS, because you're investing in the soul. That's a great long-term investment. So I thought, well, if God wants me to do it, I better do it, as it's the best way to use my life. And uh, I trained as a priest, and um, I then discovered philosophy, and led me astray into different areas altogether. Astray in the sense of away from what I'd expected to do. And I ended up doing eight years philosophy, including the United States, and I ended up back at Oxford. Uh, I'd moved two streets in 20 years, wow. uh, from nuclear physics to the Faculty of Theology, and I've been there ever since. Oh, fantastic. That's a, that's a brilliant story. And uh, I think, it, it, particularly at this moment, uh, in which we are seeing such kind of huge strides in terms of uh, the, the kind of science that's being done and the kind of effect that it's it's kind of having on everyday life i think it's, it's brilliant to have someone who can speak to both of those uh subjects if i may just bring pull, pull up a point there because mm. i do I, I do agree in a sense we're making progress and it is we've got wonderful new scientific toys to play with like space telescopes and particle accelerators but actually in many respects there's a decline in science uh, at a deep level uh as many thoughtful observers are noting um, it's, it's to do with the um, disintegration of reason. Mm. I've often thought, that as a priest, my job mainly is to save souls, but I would like to contribute in a small way to saving our civilization as well, which is a nice bonus. You know, yeah, you straight seek for heaven and you might get earth thrown in. Fantastic. Good. So, uh, Father Andrew, I mean, uh, uh, we're about to publish uh, this, this new text uh, on AI, and it, it really does seem to be in in the water, in the air at the moment. Everybody's talking about it. So um, let's start with some definitions, if we may. Um, what do we, when we're talking about AI, what exactly do we mean? I think a lot, most people now are essentially talking about chat GPT, more or less. But AI has uh, a hinterland and is used in lots of other kind of areas as well. So do you want to give us just a, an overview, maybe also where it's where it kind of comes from and, uh, and, and we'll get on yes. to where it's going as well. Yes, well, uh, it's always good to start with the dictionary definition. Uh, AI, uh, there's a very, quite a good definition in the Oxford English Dictionary. It's to do with the, uh, the exhibition or the simulation of, of human intelligence uh, and the study of uh, such exhibitions and simulations. Um, and it it's actually very old in many ways. A hundred years ago, uh, we dug up a strange device from a shipwreck in the Mediterranean. Uh, and uh, we couldn't work out what it, what it was for. And it became the subject of enormous research over, and the applications of all kinds of uh, clever scientific devices. Uh, and it's now called the Antikythera Mechanism. The Antikythera Mechanism. And we believe it was used as an analog computer designed before the birth of Jesus Christ. So the ancient Greeks had already thought about the idea of an analog computer 
doing the sorts of things that human intelligence would normally do. Uh, this is to do with the movements of the planets, the, the moon, uh, phase of the moon, and all kinds of very subtle uh, astronomical calculations. Uh, so the idea of artificial intelligence is amazingly ancient in many ways. Right, and and um, kind of moving towards what we're we're understanding as AI today. What what are the kind of origins of of that? Um, okay, well, uh, just a few days ago, I went to the Science Museum in London. Always a fun place to go, uh, and there's a, a something that looks like uh, a sort of steampunk exhibit. Uh, uh, it's um, a replicate a rep. Uh, it's a replica of a machine designed in the 19th century by uh, Charles Babbage, uh, the Babbage uh, differential uh, engine. And um, uh, the, so 19th century, the Victorians were very brilliant. They invented the internet, the, uh, the, uh, they called it the telegraph, and they also invented the, uh, the computer, uh, in this, uh, this Babbage computing engine. They couldn't really get it working properly in the 19th century, but in the 20th century, with the development of electronics, then computing really got going. And of course, given a huge boost during the war, uh, with the decoding of uh, in, uh, coded messages, as is very well known, uh, there was a massive project in this country, uh, started with information from Poland uh, to decode the German encryptions from the from their bases to their submarines. So. Um, and this stimulated the birth of modern computing in many ways, the Colossus machine. After the war, it just took off uh, enormously. Um, although it's amazing how recent it is. So just after the war, the uh, international business com machines estimated that the world production of computers would be six. Only six computers would be enough to satisfy all uh, worldwide needs for computers. Uh, uh, but obviously, that's been a, a bit of an underestimate. Um, and there was a period since the early 1960s when processing power doubled every 18 months. It almost became a law. I think it's called Moore's Law. And the real breakthrough was the integrated circuit. It, with the integrated circuit, instead of building electronic components and putting them together, uh, a huge assemblage of components was built all at once uh, through layers on a chip. And we could print out computers like grains of sand. It's just, which is really, when you see when you see a computer today, um, it looks there's a certain size and shape, but the actual heart of it is a tiny little chip. And these things are printed out by the millions. So we are uh, we're in an age of we whatever else we do, however stupid we are, we can certainly do amazing amount numbers of calculations worldwide. Right, and and so. That um, those chips uh, which allowed us to do incredible numbers of calculations in a very short space of time presumably is what now gives us the possibility of r arriving at a, at an engine like ChatGPT, which is essentially well. If, if you can explain to us kind of how it works, because I think a lot of people, you know, they're interfacing with it on their phones or on their computers, but what sits behind um, that? Right, right. Um, well. I have to introduce a note of skepticism here, right. because being now in my late 50s, I've seen excitement about AI come along roughly every 10, 15 years. Right. So everyone today is very excited, wow, this is new. No, it's happened quite a few times already in my lifetime. So 1960s, there was a, a, a huge wave of excitement about AI. Um, people with, in fact, there's all kinds of films from that time, 
Colossus, the Forbin project, and there was 2001. Well, 2001, Space Odyssey, yeah. and the people assumed, of course, you know, the great um, demigod, the created god of AI would, would be along any time now. And, uh, you know, we, we might be permitted to serve it as its humble servants or something. And, of course, machines in the 60s looked uh, kind of like temples. You know, in fact, I remember going to my, my father worked in the computer industry for many years. Uh, and um, I remember going to visit as a boy one of the big mainframes for International Computers Limited. And it was like entering uh, the sacred temple because, you know, you had to go through all these air-conditioned doors and you're measuring the purity of the air. And then these team of acolytes would come forward to make sure everything was handled properly as you entered the Holy of Holies, um, the central processing unit of one of these big mainframes. So they looked, um, they looked quite a, they had a sort of religious connotation sort of in many ways. Uh, anyway, that was the 60s, and uh, it kind of petered out because we found that AI is actually very difficult. Then, the, then was a f the, it was mixed up with the fear of Japan. People forget, 1980s, uh, people thought Japan's going to take over the world. Uh, their, their economy was, was doubling every few years. It was incredible. Um, so, sorry, just one question there. What, what led, would you say, to the kind of the end of that? Um, cycle of excitement. Ah, okay. Well, that's a very good question. So, what led to the what led to what, what, what's on the downside of AI excitement curves? Well, the fact is, it's very difficult, and also the achievements, uh, as insofar as there are achievements, uh, often seem to be perhaps taken for granted after a while, um, and their limitations understood a little bit, a little bit more. And that's, I think, that's the same thing today. So, there's huge excitement driven by Hollywood driven by the fact human beings have very little collective memory of what happened 20 years ago. Um, and today, you know, it's like the children becoming excited all over again with um, what, what's glitzy and new. Um, but that excitement, will die, I think, will die down, and AI is going to become part of uh, daily life. I suppose it's the difference this time around that... that it's kind of accessible to more people. I think it's partly true, yes, yes. I think it's therefore linked very closely to the development of smartphones, for example, and we all carry around powerful computers. It's a very, it's a very common um, example given. We're all carrying around computers more powerful than those on space rockets in the 60s, you know. Uh, it's quite... Um, and, we, and we look at cat videos with them. <laughs> yes, 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 yes the, the human race in all its glory could build Chartres Cathedral and spend its time looking at cat videos. And that's really, I think, this touched on the key thing. AI is a tool, along with all the other computing paraphernalia, uh, and we can do wonderful things with it, or we can waste our time with it. So, And, that, and that's the issue is already all human, really. They're not uh, AI only indirectly. So, um, the one, so could, could you just... Tell us, um, for those who, who don't really kind of uh, um, understand exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about chat GPT. So what is it and how does it work? Um, well, I don't know all the details about how chat GPT specifically works. Um, but a lot of it's to do with the, 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 the simulation of intelligence um, by means different to what human beings use. So that's a very simple example. Um, I got an email this morning uh, asking me to do something, and the little AI type program on my mobile phone, sorry, old-fashioned word, smartphone, 
suggested a simple answer I could give. Mm. So I could just hit one button. Um, the mobile phone, <laughs> the smartphone, wasn't thinking uh, I need to reply to this, this answer in this particular way, but knew that this sequence of, of words would be appropriate for a standard text response. So it's it's sort of... Um, yeah, so how does it know what's, what's um, a, an appropriate response? Mostly because most of the things we do as human beings are pretty standard. Uh, and you could actually train um, computers a bit like parrots, for example. In fact, there's some fantastic what, cat videos. Look at, look at parrot videos. <laughs> a fantastic uh, interactions between human beings and parrots. Um, and parrots can uh, come up with the right responses to questions. But we're pretty certain parrots don't really understand the words. And this is where uh, the whole philosophical debate comes in about AI. Is it um, because it, it, it does simulate a machine. It does simulate a mind. But um, and people can be very, can be very misled by that. Uh, but it's mostly most, it's mostly word association, okay. frankly. So word it, association. So the, this kind of uh, language engine is looking at, um, or has been told to look at, or has been programmed to look at all the words that, that are used on the internet, say, right. and it will come up with a kind of probabilistic right. theory of what word follow one follows another what's the most likely to to, to follow right. in a certain context okay so it's it's basically a kind of glorified predictive text basically yes yes there was a shock we mentioned this in our booklet by the way it's a a, a psychoanalyst a, psycho, a psychoanalysis was almost the first thing to be successfully um simulated in ai right. <laughs> because the responses the doctors would give were so standard right. okay. uh, and people were really convinced they were dealing with a, a genuine analyst uh in, a, in an early version of these programs so um the computer just says how does this make you feel that's right the, yeah okay. exactly, exactly. It, it is so standard right. that it can be um uh, so simulated probabilistically okay. and that's what we're dealing with really behind all the ai and its modern um, glitzy forms. That's mostly what we're dealing with. So, reading through your your text, um, one image which really stuck with me was uh, Vaucanson's duck. So, could you could you tell us the uh, a little bit about that? It's it's a it's a lovely story. So, it comes from 18th century France, and uh, again, this is part of history. People forget there was a great there was a great um, craze for making automatons. Uh, perhaps the most common modern relic of this are the, the if you go to ancient uh, or, or medieval church towers in parts of Europe, you see these little figures coming and uh, hitting yeah, drums ringing and bell, ringing yeah. bells, that's right. So, so but, but automatons became very sophisticated in 18th century France. And there was this Vaucanson's uh, uh, duck, uh, which was uh, caused a huge sensation in France. And of course, we're trying to draw the parallels with the modern excitement today about AI. Because Vaucanson's duck, um, it, it could peck seed and it could excrete uh, waste. And after a while, uh, it was modified to excrete little pearls. And people said, wow, we're, we're almost on the verge of building an artificial being. Um, just a little bit more work needed and we'll be there, you know, maybe even a better duck than real ducks, you know. Um, 
And in fact, we, we quote Voltaire, uh, basically saying that uh, he would quote uh, an opera singer and also Vaucanson's Duck as the two things that are, reminds everyone of the glory of France. You know? So it was a massive sensation. Um, but it was shown to be a bit of a trick because the duck was not actually digesting food. It was um, uh, popping out pre-prepared pellets and absorbing, uh, so it was storing up the seed absorbed and popping out uh, pre-prepared pellets of waste or pearls. So it wasn't, it was a bit less impressive under the bonnet, so right. to speak. Um, but it's important because this kind of, st this, this story illustrates very closely what's happening today, I think, with, uh, with AI. Mm. We're looking at things that, that do look impressive. And, um, and people will, will tend to think almost the same thing. Gosh, a little bit more work, we're almost there. Maybe even they'll surpass us, you know. But actually it's a different kind of thing. Um, towards the end of uh, the booklet, uh, there's an example that came from a book um, on what computers still can't do. Very famous critique of AI, written 30, 40 years ago and still valid. Um, it's a famous book by Hu Hubert Dreyfus. And he gives a very good image at the end of the book. He says, uh, our progress in AI is like climbing a tree to get closer to the moon. It's a fantastic image. If you if you do climb a tall tree, and the right and the moon's in the right place in the sky, you get a bit close to the moon. But it's not it's not something you could ever extend further. Mm. You can't meaningfully close the distance between being on the ground and the surface of the moon by climbing a tree. You can you can get a measure a measurable bit closer, but it's it's not. It doesn't solve the problem of crossing two hundred thousand miles of empty space. Mm. And that's what we're dealing with with, with uh, AI, I think, in many, in many ways. I think just just going back to the the duck, because I mean, it yes. re it really stuck in my mind because it seems to me that what's what's happening with the duck is is essentially a kind of sleight of hand, right? Mm -hmm. And what we what Vokenson was doing with the duck was actually to um, to kind of show the beginning and the end of a process. And then essentially those who were kind of looking at that process right. were kind of filling in the gap and exactly. imagining that what was happening inside the duck was that the duck was digesting the the, the, the seed and doing what a real duck does. And in, in one sense, that's what people think is happening with with AI. So you, you type in a question to chat GPT, whatever, and so and people kind of imagine that there's like some sort of brain sitting behind that's doing the same kind of thing that we do. Sorry. But but it's not, is it? So so you, do you want to just say something about that? Yes, yes. So this is the big, this is the source of most of the illusions, I think. And I would say that uh, I may be sounding a bit sceptical here, and I and I and, I, and sh we should have certain kind of scepticism. But I'm not I'm not a, I'm not an opponent to the technology. Mm. In fact, I think it's fantastic. Computers do do the boring stuff much faster than we do. Uh, in fact, we couldn't do a lot of our t science. We couldn't run our society today without computers. And, uh, and I'm a huge enthusiast for what fast com computation can tell us. But I think the danger is to confuse computation for other things. Um, so, uh, sorry, you, I, I've, I've got so excited by my uh, uh, little <laughs> aside, I forgot the question. No, so uh, say it again? just that, yeah, that, yes. that, in a sense, we're kind of projecting something yes, onto, it, yes. onto what is an, a yes. calculation, and we're imagining that it's something else. Yes, yes. I suppose, the, I suppose it's because... 
partly because our own minds are adapted to projection. Or it's because if we see something looking like a human being, we assume it is a human being. Um, this is what makes things like the zombies rather scary because um, they are almost like human beings but not. Um, and AI can almost look like human intelligence sometimes. But under the bonnet is a different kind of thing. Now, there's a very famous thought experiment by, uh, by a professor, uh, John Searle. Uh, there are two famous thought experiments about this, and they're equal and opposite. Should I explain them briefly? Yes, yeah, no, please. So, so the first one's called the Turing test, and this was... Um, uh, it, it started with a very famous, one of the most famous... Uh, philosophers of computing, uh, Alan Turing, who worked on the Colossus machine in the Second World War. And um, and Turing put down a challenge. So if you've got uh, two terminals uh, and they are, a, a person can ask questions through these computer terminals. Uh, behind one terminal, hidden behind the screen, there's a, there's a, there's a human being responding. And behind the, other, the other behind the other terminal, there's a machine. And the challenge that Turing made was, well, if you can't tell which one's the man and which one's the machine, um, then uh, you've got artificial, you've no right not to say there's artificial intelligence there. It's, it's, you, you, you can attribute artificial intelligence. So this became something called the Turing test. It's now used as a sort of standard measure for testing intelligent machines. However, um, another philosopher, some years later, called John Searle, came up with an interesting counterexample, and it's became become known as Searle's Chinese Room. And Searle imagines that um, you've got a you've got uh, you've got a you've got a room, and you've got someone feeding Chinese characters into the room, asking questions in Chinese, and he sits in the room. He's got a massive uh, set of books that instruct him which characters he has to return when he receives a particular set of characters. So um, he sees a, a sequence of 10 characters, he's told he has to give eight characters, and he, he, he outputs from the room a set of characters in Chinese. And from the outside of the room, it looks as if what is inside the room understands Chinese. But the bottom line is John Searle does not understand Chinese. So it's a way of teasing apart the appearance of something from genuine understanding. Uh, and so you've got these two thought experiments, uh, the Turing test and Searle's Chinese room, and they give opposite um, interpretations of what you can do with AI. And people argue about these all the time. Yeah, so I think that, that brings us to a... a the kind of underlying, should we say, perhaps philosophical question, yes. which is kind of what does it actually mean to understand or to know or to... And, I mean, I, 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 we have to bear in mind, you know, we yes. don't want to get too far into the yeah. weeds, but what, what... In one sense, does it matter? And, it, well, in one sense, first question is kind of what is it? What does it mean? Right. And in, in the second... The follow-up question to, to that would be does it matter or does it... Does it have actually just the same effect whether it's real understanding or whether it's not? Right. Okay. It's a slightly big topic. Okay. But let me let, <laughs> let me just let me just introduce a few little yeah. pointers here. Uh, we cover this a little bit in the booklet, mm. but there's another there's another work I really strongly recommend. Uh, it's called The Master and His Emissary, 
the divided brain and the making of the Western world. I'll just repeat that. The master and his emissary, the divided brain and the making of the Western world. And it's really all about, all about the topic of understanding. Um, and uh, let me give you a little anecdote. So I used to study physics at Oxford, as I mentioned earlier. And there was a very uh, sort of hardcore physicist, a physicist physicist. Everyone's sort of standard... Um, Sort of uh, prejudices about what a physicist is. This guy had it in, had them in spades, right? Um, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. This is how he thought. Um, but what's interesting, he would ask a question. He had it's Oxford uh, tutorials, so there's a lot of there's a lot of um, interaction between the the professors and the students, and a lot of dialogue. And he would ask us a question, uh, or he'd explain something rather. And then he would say, ask the question, do you understand? And, of course, if you're 80 years old, you're asked by a professor at Oxford, do you understand? Go, oh, of course I understand, yes, yes. But he would look at our faces. Go blank. You know? <laughs> Clearly, we did not understand, right? So he'd know that he had not hit gold yet. So he'd explain more simply. And he'd ask again, do you understand? Oh, yes, you understand. No, no blankness still, blankness. And he would reduce the complexity of the explanation to the point where, ah, you can actually see it on the face. It's actually a physiological response. Ah, oh, I see it. I understand. And then you know that he's he's got what he wanted, and then you can build up the explanations again. So this, this hardcore materialist um, had a very strong sense of that understanding is important. Uh, let me give you another example. One of the most famous examples of a story about understanding uh, is to do with Archimedes. Archimedes is asked to measure, to try to assess whether the king of Syracuse's crown is made of pure gold or it has been um, uh, corrupted, corrupted by someone stealing some of the gold, basically. And he does, in modern terms, he has to measure the density of the crown. He's got no idea how to do it. How do you measure the density of an irregular shape without destroying it, uh, if you if you could? Um, so, uh, but one day he goes to the bath and he sits down in the bath, and he sees the water rise up the side of the bath, and with a in the flash he realizes this is a way of measuring the volume of a shape by the displacement of water. Once you've got the mass, which you can you can you can do a set of scales to to measure the mass, and you've got the and you've got the volume. You got the density, so he had a way of measuring the density of the king's crown without destroying it. And he was so excited. The story goes, he leapt out of the bath and ran down the street, street naked, shouting "Eureka! I have it!" Um, that's how exciting understanding can be. My father, who's now deceased, uh, used to play Sudoku games quite a lot. He's kept his mind going very well. And um, again, it's like you see a solution, you see how things fit together. Aha! In psychology, we call them aha moments. Uh, and I think philosophy has been a bit snobbish about these things for about three or four centuries. Now suddenly, we're becoming interested again. And this book, The Master's Emissary, really has is one of the of one of these great books that's bringing this this whole topic to the fore. What is understanding? It's more than knowledge. It's seeing how things fit together. It's often very simple, and, and it's enjoyable. Um, Anyone who uh, has ever seen, and remember the metaphor is vision, anyone who's seen a solution to a problem uh, knows that it's an enjoyable thing.
I see. We've, we even use I see as a metaphor for I understand. In fact, you may remember the cartoons. Well, a cartoon's about a little less fashionable these days. But uh, if you ever see a light bulb go off over a figure's head, bing, like the coyote is chasing yeah. the rabbit or whatever, bing, and knows how to do it. So it, it's, a, it's a metaphor for this uh, of insight. Um, is it necessary? Well, only in the sense that everything important is to do with having insights. It's the start of all kinds of new thought processes. It is even given uh, the name of a gift of the Holy Spirit in Christian theology. Um, and it's, you know, everything important that happens in humanities or science often involves insight, sooner or later. Um, and as far as we know, we've got, we don't really understand it very well. <laughs> we don't understand understanding very well. Um, and we've got no idea how to simulate it at the machine. So uh, uh, all AI has no understanding whatsoever. But that, doesn't, but that doesn't preclude things that would normally be the results of, AI, of yeah. understanding being replicable using AI. So that's the situation. Yeah. So, so the AI will never kind of understand in the same way that we do. Uh, well, I wouldn't. But I wouldn't. Be, I wouldn't. I, I'm tend to avoid prescriptive language. Okay. I wouldn't say never. I don't. But we have no idea how to. Um, I'm, I suspect it probably will be never. But um, uh, we're certainly not there at the moment. Right. So, I, th I suppose that the, the the question that I I wanted to get to um, is that. At that point, okay, we can say that, that AI is not understanding things in the same way that we do, but the result couldn't, can, I mean, and in a sense, we have to say to it whether it's understood or not. That's right. Um, let me give you an example. It's a very, a very important one in recent years. There was a citizen science project called Galaxy Zoo, uh, and it was there, it was designed to genuinely advance scientific understanding. Um, and it, it relied on the faculty of understanding in human beings. And it's due to the fact that interpretations of galaxies uh, can be done very well by the human eye and the human mind. So if you look at a splodge of light, uh, a, human, a human being can gauge whether this is a spiral galaxy, it's an irregular galaxy, if it's right spiral, left spiral, um, and there are various other categories of, of, of galaxy. Um, the citizen, and this Galaxy Zoo project, it presented anyone who wanted to take part was able to go online and look at a picture of a galaxy and judge what kind of galaxy it was. Um, and uh, the, so this, this is something that computers couldn't really do. And we still don't think computers can do it, but we are now able to... to to, to do mathematical calculations to get comparable results. Um, so Galaxy Zoo has declined in importance because we found calculative ways of doing the same thing. Um, but uh, and we could train computers to do that. Um, and that shows both the if you like, potential and the, and the limitations of computers. The actual act of understanding does still seem to be an exclusively human thing. But when you've got a really boring task, like catalog, being a catalogue of a billion galaxies, you know, um, even, you know, each galaxy is a marvellous little micro-universe, it's a sense of awe. But if you've got a catalogue of a billion of them, it's kind of boring. Even that can get boring. Like, even that can get boring. Right? So, but, but if a computer can do it by calculations, 
then it saves us a lot of time and effort. Um, but it, only recently has that become possible. So that, that I think, brings us quite neatly on to, to another question, which is, um, I mean, I suppose the, the first question would be, do you think that these technologies, are they neutral or can a technology uh, like this be considered kind of good or bad? Uh, and then the, the second, and then we can go into the, the kind of interesting questions about the, the danger or otherwise of, of AI going forward. Uh, well, I'm a great enthusiast for technology of all kinds, really. And uh, whether it's good or bad, it depends on the usage. Uh, both of us are sitting here wearing glasses, for example. Uh, the first glasses appeared about the 13th century, uh, worn by an Italian cardinal. was the, was the first ever known use of glasses. Uh, and that was based on the theory of optics by Roger Bacon. So I, I'm a beneficiary of technology, uh, as, as you are. Um, the cameras recording our speech and uh, vision today, uh, of course, are products of amazingly advanced technology. We are um, we're drinking clean water. That's a product of technology. You know? So uh, with the AI, it's another kind of technology. It's, it's, it can be used to reduce uh, unnecessary human labor. And to go back to one of the earliest computers, or one of the first the first actual designed computer, the, the Charles Babbage's uh, differential engine, sorry, the analytical engine in the 19th century. It was there to, to, to do all the boring calculations needed by the British Empire in the 19th century, like tide tables for navigation on the oceans and that sort of thing. It's a boring calculations. Uh, and it was designed to reduce, uh, to, to reduce the work needed and to improve the accuracy. So the sort of thing technology can do very well as a wonderful tool for us. Of course, we can, we can mess it up and you misuse it. Um, and I mean, there's, there's always been um, those who look at a new technology and say, well, you know, this is, this is the end of civilization. You know, even in, I think in Plato's Phaedra, they, they used to talk about writing being like, ah, it's just going to be the end of, you know, okay, yes. the end of civilization, okay. the end of real yeah, knowledge. Um, uh, and so I suppose in a sense, there's nothing new about um, spotting certain kind of dangers, whether they're over, over, you know, overplayed or underplayed. I don't know. But um, I mean, in this case, we we have been I mean, you know, going back to what we were talking about, you know, 2001 or something. There's always been this recognition that AI may cause uh, or may become at some point very dangerous to, to human beings and I think that's one of the big the big questions that has that kind of comes up every time we go through one of these excitement kind of cycles about yes. AI yeah. that comes up yes. so should we be afraid of AI I mean is it possible that it could you know a little bit down the road cause you know civilizational extinction um, well there are sort of a common or garden everyday risks because of the kinds of beings that we are. And this is not a new thing. Uh, so a few years ago, I, I sat on a set of friends, which uh, some of you, some of viewers may remember. civilizational so, <laughs> Right, okay. So basically, it was, it was a famous uh, soap from the 1990s of uh, people living in a New York apartment. Um, and I sat on the set, and I suddenly thought, I'm, I'm in Plato's cave because this is where we produce the shadows of the puppets of real things. Plato's Cave is a very, is a very famous philosophical story uh, from, the, from the three centuries before Christ. Uh, 
He imagines that we're prisoners in the cave, looking at the shadows of puppets of real things, projecting the walls of the cave. Um, and the whole task of enlightenment is get out of the cave, escape from this world of shadows. Now, AI associated technologies are very good at putting us back in the world of shadows. Um, and you mentioned cat videos earlier. <laughs> I mean, how much how much time is spent wasted in Plato's cave today? It's a lot. It's a lot of time. So there are those sorts of everyday risks uh, to do with the kinds of beings that we are and the temptations to which we're prone. Um, but when people talk about the the risks of AI, they often talk about more existential threats, like hit a button and, explode and destroy the world. That's really uh, much more to do with our, our stupidity um, if we uh, misuse the technology than anything else. Uh, and, and you know, to give a simple example, you can build, you can put an AI and a guided missile, and that will kill people. Um, so, uh, and on a bigger scale, um, it could be more of an existential threat. Because I think there are already um, drones. Yes, uh, armed drones that are yes, completely yes. kind of um, not guided by by a human. Pilot. Yes, yes, yes. Um, my uh, parents and grandparents are both to see all the deceased now, but do remember the uh, the doodle bugs in doodle bugs? What was it? The uh, the um, pilotless pilotless planes sent over to Britain in the last years of the, of the Second World War. Some people used to say they lack the human touch, you know, of being bombed by real people. Uh, so, so yes, it can be a so be, being attacked by machines isn't exactly new, um, but uh, generally the risks come from our own. It, it's not so much artificial intelligence; it's a failure to imply human intelligence, which will be the source of any risks which are out there. And that's a big point we make in our booklet. Uh, you know, put things in perspective. Um, it's not. It's not about AI that where the, where the risk comes. It's about the failure to apply human intelligence. So the the idea of maybe not giving you know the the codes to the the nuclear arsenal to, <laughs> well, to oh, AI yes. that might be yes, good. Yes, yes. That's a famous film, the Forbin Project from the sixties, about giving all the the nuclear uh, uh, weapons put them under the control of a giant computer, which then decides to do its own stuff. Um, but that's you know, that's a failure of human intelligence. It's not it's not the machine. Uh, but one point we well, do make there is, there is a more yeah. subtle point from the book. Um, so sometimes, to give an example the, the, about the, the care needed, you can you can instruct a computer to do things, um, but maybe the computer will not do them the way you expect, and that's where there can be some risks. A famous example is is the paperclip maximizer. It's a famous thought experiment about the dangers of AI. Imagine a, a machine that just produces paperclips and uh, and turns everything it sees or comes across into a paperclip. And it might decide, well, to to produce ever more paperclips, I got I got to I got to get rid of any possibility of being turned off. You know, so get rid of these human beings who are who could get in the way of my purpose, which is to produce paperclips. So you you can actually get situations where you can set a goal. But without being cautious about the means, or in some ways setting constraints or guidance about the means, uh, you could end up with um, un, um, uh, unexpected and unpleasant consequences. And by the way, this happens on a small scale as well. So just a few months ago, um, a, a lawyer in America got unstuck because he was in the court and he was quoting case law to defend a particular case. 
Uh, and, and he was challenged by the judge because the cases he was citing didn't really exist. And he was using ChatGPT to find answers to legal questions. And, and the AI was producing non-existent case law. Not, not out of a desire to deliberately deceive, but because the, the idea that uh, there should be truth in citations of laws had not been programmed into the mm. computer. So it's whatever worked. And so it's a, it's a very good example of how um, it, so, some care is needed to make sure that um, uh, that 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 human that we have to make sure that human intelligence is used properly, not only to define goals for AI, but also the means by which goals are, are pursued. Yeah, I mean, this brings to mind, you know, uh, what is it? Is it Asimov's laws of of robots? Yes, no, yes. And, and I mean those. And, you know, there's plenty of uh, sci-fi movies that kind of p uh, try to kind of explore the, the limitations of those yeah. laws. Uh, I mean, no one's come up with or, or have they come up with something similar for AI in terms of, uh, uh, you know, a set of rules by which the the possible damage that AI could do is limited. That's an interesting question and it's an evolving question. Mm. So I haven't got any definitive answer, I'm afraid. Um but we do almost certainly we do need, do need some things like that, and that's why Asimov came up with his uh, laws of robotics. I mean, what, one of the one of the brilliant sections I think in in the booklet is where um, during in the FAQs you ask um, ChatGPT to answer one of the questions. Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, which is I, I think is about whether ChatGPT can hear con a confession. Yes, yes. And it's very interesting that the answer that it gives is correct. But it's not really. It, it kind of misses the point a bit. Yes, that's right. Yes, uh, um, and uh, I went as far as checking some of the uh, the canons being cited mm. from canon law, and they weren't quite the right ones. They were not exactly wrong, but they were not the best ones that could have been chosen. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, but, but the whole thing looked, plaus looked plausible, and in fact, the answer was right. But whether it's right or not isn't the big issue. The, the um, at least for the AI, the AI just produces a plausible answer, right. and this is where care is needed, or people have become unstuck because sometimes uh, an AI can produce what is indeed plausible and thought to be true, and it's not. Mm. I mean, but this there's a, there's a sort of an inevitability about about AI that it seems at the moment that um, I mean it's true that some people have sort of said well, we need you know like Elon Musk said we need to pause. Um, just to kind of think about where we're going with this. But it seems to be kind of going under its own steam. I mean, driven by, by human beings, I think, and by a kind of fear that other people might get, get ahead or other countries might get ahead. Um, but what do, you, what do you think of it? What, what's driving? I mean, there seems, from the outside, you could almost say from a religious perspective, that there seems to be a kind of a guiding a sort of spirit within it that's kind of just pushing it or... I mean, I, I don't know. What, what do you think of that? I think it's probably. Um, I'm more skeptical that uh, of some of some dark force here. Uh, just as I'm more, I'm, I'm skeptical about people attributing understanding or wisdom or or deceit, perhaps, to AI. It's, it's, AI is just a big calculation. So ultimately, it's calculation. That's all. Um, 
Does and does the world produce a number? I don't think so. Mm. There are there argues arguments for that and uh, controversies about that. I don't think I don't think you can produce the whole world to number. What AI can do is it can handle quite a lot, but it has to reduce everything to a number. Uh, so it's going to miss certain things. And we we list some of the things in the uh, booklet. Uh, um, understanding. We've got no idea how to calculate understanding because we've got. No, we, we have a very, only a, a very vague notion of what understanding is, although we know it's important. What about attention, attending to something? Um, a, a computer doesn't really attend to an object. Uh, it attends to, it has a visual field, pixels. Um, and that, whole, that, that reaching out into the world and grasping something, like a glass of water, um, that's a kind of human way of engaging in the world that we have no idea how to do in that form. Um, or, or when you've just got a, a field of pixels, free, free will. <laughs> we, think we've got, we think we've got free will. I think we do have free will. Uh, but we've got no idea how to um, make a free will. Uh, and, um, and AIs do not themselves... Um, uh, discern truth or goodness. So there's a, so there's a heck of a lot we can do, and it's and I, I'm actually an optimist about technology. I think it's, a, it's it can be a good thing, um, but it's important to know its limitations. I mean, so as I mean, just kind of drawing the the conversation to to a close. As Catholics, so presumably we can um, we can use. ChatGPT or or some some kinds of AI, there's no kind of moral problem with that. But because of the way that we see the world, I suppose we would see different problems with it than maybe kind of others with a more kind of materialistic worldview might see it. And I mean, you've you've often spoke about the the problems of reducing the world to calculations or to counting things. And um, so, what 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 would you say there is the real kind of danger? I think uh, there is a slightly different perspective on danger from a Christian or non-Christian perspective. And I think one risk is that if you don't if you don't worship and love the true God, the God of love, then you could, then it's very easy to invent gods. Um, this is not a new problem. So there are, there are a set of words I often give students, and they go as follows: All flowers of the earth tell of His love. He is the creator of happiness. All flowers of the earth tell of his love. He's a creator of happiness. And I ask students, where do these words come from? And they've no idea. Or they say, well, maybe it comes from the Bible. It doesn't. It comes from the second verse of a patriotic, patriotic hymn of North Korea. And they're singing praises to the supreme leader of North Korea, which is officially an atheist state in the sense of disbelieving in a transcendent God. If you don't believe in the transcendent God of love, then you invent substitutes. And I th in the history of AI, this has happened more than once. Um, there's a very famous book called Girdle Escher Bark by Doug Douglas Hofstadter. And in the revised edition, he said this is, and he's a, he's a famous proponent of AI. And he says at the beginning, this is my religion. So I think that there is a, a danger, the danger is slightly different if you don't have a, a Christian faith, because you can, it's perhaps even a bit easier to project onto AI a kind of day of the properties of a deity uh, to fill in the blank, so to, to fill, in the, fill in the gap.
Um, but as, as Catholics, we are, you know, I'm a, I'm a great enthusiast uh, and defender of the view that the church is, is very much in favor of, of science and knowledge. Uh, Catholic priests invented the Big Bang Theory, we invented genetics, we appointed the first woman professor of mathematics, we invented the university system. Um, we are, the path of the church is so much bound up with the development of a highly scientific civilization. Um, and of course we have to adapt and change as that civilization changes. But uh, it's not something to fundamentally to be afraid of. It's more a question of, of, of managing the change rather than being afraid of it. I mean, I suppose one one way that we see things, I mean, we, we believe in a fallen man yes. and we believe in in uh, concupiscence and, and the fact that we will often make choices which are kind of wrong. And so in that sense, if, if we are leaving kind of AI in the hands of fallen men, then as, as a Christian, there's always going to be a, you're always going to see a bit of a danger there. Oh sure, yes, yes. Uh, 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 but we have to deal with human, full human beings, so that they're the only ones on offer, you know. Yeah. So for every other activity human beings do, we've got to deal with fallenness. There are particular kinds of temptations of AI and associated technologies. Um, I mentioned one earlier: the uh, the whole business of being completely absorbed in artificial worlds mm. is. Uh, uh, Plato recognised that and. Uh, Christianity has respected his insights in this area. Um, you know, we, we we have to get out of Plato's cave and get into the sunshine and see the real world. So, but that's you don't have, you don't have to be a Christian to realise that. But it's something that we would certainly boost and support in all kinds of ways. No, I mean I I see this very much with with my teens, etc. Yes. You know, they they're constantly being pushed into a, a kind of virtual world. Yeah. And the the kind of chat robots, you know, there there at the moment there are I think it's on Snapchat. You can just talk to a, com a computer and yes. and it kind of responds to you and likes your photos and all the rest. Yeah. And there are many there are many going down that route. Yes. Uh, it's actually a more sophisticated version of what was talked about in the Old Testament about making an idol. Mm. Uh, what is an idol? It's an artificial god. Uh, and it's you know, people think, oh, that was just the old days. But we actually are very good at, we actually are very sophisticated at making artificial gods today uh, and uh, falling down and worshipping them. Uh, and so a, a Christian parent has to be cautious about this and, and give some wi general wisdom. You know, the world is bigger than the machines. The world is bigger than the representations in, in chat GTPT or, you know, or, or, or on your screens. I'm not very sad just traveling here by train and every single person's on their mobile, you know. Um, it's uh, like a little little world. Well, one woman, uh, I had a tried a conversation with one woman who was, to swap seats and she couldn't hear me because she got these headphones on I said you can't hear me we've got headphones on you know and uh, it was a shock to like, break her out of this artificial world for a few seconds so she could have a conversation with a real human being um, so I don't think these are specifically AI uh, risks but there's a general need to apply um, wisdom practical wisdom uh, to 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 these developments, and I think I think that that Catholicism has a particularly um, robust kind of answer to this, in in the sense that we are 
the most incarnated religion. And, uh, and, and so, oh, frankly, we're, we're experts on sin. Uh, well, one funny thing, uh, studying for the priesthood, uh, studying canon law, is a whole series of shutting the ho- stable door after the holes are bolted because it, it deals with every, pretty much every kind of sin or every kind of situation, sinful, wrong situation that can be gone through in human human history. We're, we're very good at we're experts on sin. Yes. So we, we can see that this is going to be used in the wrong ways, but we all, we already kind of have a, a remedy in Christ and in forgiveness. That uh, abso- absolutely. Most things have happened before in slightly different forms. So I mentioned earlier Plato's Cave. That was written 23 centuries ago. It applies to modern technology today. Um, I mentioned idols in the Old Testament. That also applies to the misuse of AI today. Uh, it's, but it's not the technology itself that's wrong, but it's it can be failures to, uh, of human wisdom and, and human love. Great. So... Um Thank you very much for um, your insight and for uh, your wisdom today, uh, Father. Your, uh, the, the booklet uh, on AI uh, is uh, going to be available very soon uh, and can be got from the CTS website, ctsbooks.org. Um, so thank you very much. And from all of us at the Catholic Truth Society, thank you for joining us.